9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, um, Jesus in the previous section forgave the sins of the paralyzed man. It seems appropriate that the next story he'd be calling a man who was well known as a sinner. Uh, he has both the right to forgive sins and also the right to have sinners uh, to be in as his disciples. Um, what was what was this guy? What what do we know about him? Tax collector. He was a tax collector. You remember what we've said about tax collectors? What made them so unpopular? <clears throat> usually collected more than they were required to as their own pocket themselves, I guess. Yes, exactly. So they were pretty much synonymous with cheats and thieves. <laughs> and they were collecting for who? The Roman Empire, which so they were traitors. Uh, what kind of taxes did they collect? Sales tax, income tax, property tax. What? Income? Nope. Uh, what was it? Shipping taxes. Yeah, like tariffs on goods being transported down the road, down the, the highway. That that's the kind of taxes they were, and so they. I get. I don't know exactly how all that worked, but but I assume they would assess the tax based upon what was being transported, and uh, so the more they get, the more they have in their pocket. So if Jesus calls a man like Matthew, what's that going to do for Jesus's popularity? Probably won't enhance it with anyone other than perhaps other tax collectors. I don't know. Um, but Jesus was never too worried about fitting in with the preconceived notions of the people around him. You can certainly see that. Well, when Jesus does that, the next thing that happens is apparently Matthew has kind of a reception for his uh, new master. And uh, he invites to his house many tax collectors and sinners that are there eating with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees see this, and who do they talk to? The disciples. What are they saying to the disciples? Your teacher is eating with sinners. Shame on you for having a teacher like this. You know, look at the kind of people that he associates with. Why is he eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You know, so they're trying to turn the disciples away from him, discredit him by the company he keeps. And Jesus heard it, and he answers them. Doesn't give the disciples that opportunity. I don't know what they might have said. But what does Jesus answer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what would you think about a doctor who refused to see sick people? <laughs> you know. Not much of a doctor. That's exactly right. What's he good for anyway? I mean, that's his job. You know, uh, we, it, it's impossible to reach out to and help sinners if we refuse to have any contact with them. If you won't speak to them, how are you going to teach them? It wasn't that Jesus was compromising his morals, but he did not view morality in terms of who you didn't speak to and who you didn't eat with. Morality was a matter of your personal behavior and attitude. Jesus reached out to low life and called them to repentance. Now, the thing that I think is ironic and what the Pharisees ask is what? You see the irony when they say, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? 
who did they think they were? <laughs> if Jesus wasn't going to eat with sinners, guess what? You'd have to stay away from them. See, they didn't see themselves as sick, as sinners, as in... Well, I sure wouldn't eat with those guys. They're sinners. So they're self-righteous. They're not seeing their true condition. They didn't realize that it was as much an act of humility on Jesus' part to associate with them as it was to associate with Matthew. You know, kind of... Yeah, that's exactly right, because their pride... That was an additional sin to what the tax collectors were guilty of. You know... So this is kind of the pot calling the kettle black, we'd say. And then very, uh, you know, kind of bitingly, Jesus said, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Look at who Jesus is telling them to learn what the scripture means. The scripture experts who prided themselves on knowing it. But they didn't know what that meant. They hadn't understood the idea that serving God was more than just offering the required sacrifices and filling some rules. They needed to show compassion. That was a part of their responsibility before God. And Jesus just said, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So when we get done with this story, ask yourself two questions. Do we show mercy to outcasts like Matthew? And do we see ourselves as sick? I think those are two good applications for us to think about in connection with this story. Comments and thoughts on it? Fourteen to seventeen. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wine skins, and both are preserved. So, the question here goes from should Jesus eat with sinners to should Jesus eat? <laughs> and look at the different groups who have been at cross purposes with Jesus in this chapter. In the first story, in verse 3, who's thinking bad thoughts about Jesus? The scribes. Then the the group that's questioning the disciples in verse eleven is, and now who is it? John's disciples. John's disciples, who say we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. In the Old Testament law, did the law command fasting? Once. Once. What's the once? Day of Atonement. Day of atonement. I remember Ma or Acts twenty-seven when the fast was over meaning it was late October or whatever. What do we call the Day of Atonement on a calendar that shows Jewish holidays? Yom Kippur. That's it. Yom is their word for day, and Kippur is their word for to cover, to atone, or whatever. So Yom, Yom Kippur is, is that day. But anyhow, the Pharisees had added a bunch more. From what we know historically, the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, every Monday and Thursday. Every Monday and Thursday. <laughs> Good wow. grief. Do you see how liberal Jesus is? He didn't fast at all. <laughs> the weight loss program. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you make up for that on Tuesday and Friday. Wow. From what we know historically, that was their fasting. Remember that Pharisee that spoke in the temple in Luke 18, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess. That's what he was referring oh. to. Yeah. And, uh, wow, that's crazy. Well, you know, there are times when Christians look less religious, less spiritual than non-Christians. I mean, what do people think, for example, when we don't put on a big Christmas play? You know, it may make it look like, 
you guys just really don't really care much about the Lord, do you? <laughs> you know, and I think that's the way this is here. Jesus and the disciples, they eat every day. They're not really, they're not really spiritual. <laughs> that's the way it would look. And so Jesus explains that with some cool little stories. I, I call these like mini parables. He talks about um, a, a bridegroom, like a, a wedding. And uh, do the attendants of the bridegroom fast at a wedding? Well, no. You know, weddings are joyous occasions of feasting. Uh, but he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You'd fast if the bridegroom got killed. Now, then you'd fast because it'd be a grievous time. So fasting is to go with the, the occasion, not just with the, uh, you know, day on the calendar. Now, it's interesting to me. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. So Jesus is saying that his presence or absence would be that significant. They wouldn't fast when he was present. When, he, when his life was tragically ended, they would fast. Everything that's done is done on the basis of Jesus. That, that's really amazing. That he'd say, well, if I'm here... There's no fasting. If I'm taken away, then they'll fast. That's how important Jesus' life is. So that's the first lesson. It's just not an appropriate time to fast right now. It's a joyous occasion. And then he talks about patching an old garment with new cloth, which is almost a lost illustration since we live in the era of pre-shrunk material, pre-shrunk fabrics. But when I was a kid, you bought your clothes quite a bit too big because the first few times you washed and dried them, they'd shrink. None of you even have thought about that, have you? Yeah, you do, do that, son? A little bit. We a little. Buy it way too big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it shrunk a lot more in my era. I mean, that was something. I mean, every time we went to the store, it was, it'll shrink. You know, you got to get it bigger, it'll shrink. You were you were several years behind me, but I do. That that's what Mom would always say. Yeah. Either you don't. It, we, but it, they may have had some by the time you were coming along. I don't know. That's pretty sure. But with mine, I mean, she'd buy them a couple sizes too big, and it'd shrink. Uh, but so think about what would happen if you put a new denim patch on the hole in your jeans, and then you wash and dry it. The new denim shrinks up. The old jeans have already shrunk. And so they'll just tear and make it worse. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. The other illustration is similar. <laughs> you don't put new wine in old wine skins. Here's the idea. The, the, the skins, like animal skins, have some give to them. If you put grape juice in an animal skin and let it sit so that it will make wine over a period of I don't know how long it takes, the, as I understand it, the fermentation gives off a gas so it like expands. But, but if you put it in a new skin, an animal skin has some elasticity, some give to it, so it'll be okay. But if you put some more grape juice in a, an old wine skin that's already been stretched, and then it starts expanding, what'll happen? Burst. It'll burst. And everything will be ruined. Now Jesus' point is this. You should not expect me and the new gospel I'm bringing to fit within the old traditional framework of your religion. Jesus came to bring something new, not just to patch up the old. So, if you understand how Jesus' gospel is totally new, you're not expecting that he will follow their fasting practices. You know, people all the time want Jesus to just patch things for them. You know, do a little patch job. I've got a rough spot in my life here. Can I get a little Jesus sewn on to patch that up? Or they like to use Jesus sort of as an additive. You know, pour a little Jesus in, it makes the, the organism run smoother. You know, and that's the way people use Jesus. You know, I need a little religion here, I need a little bit there, you know, and that'll be about right, just about right. You know, that'll smooth things over. But Jesus is saying, I'm not like that. 
I didn't come to patch up or to be added to the way you've always done things. I came bringing a whole new system. If you try to just use me as a patch or as an additive, it'll just ruin everything. It won't work. You can't just get a little Jesus. You know, you can't leap a chasm in two stages. It doesn't work. This is an all or nothing thing. You gotta discard the old and get the totally new. So I think those are just great little illustrations. Comments and thoughts about that. You were saying in verse 15 how you made it sound like when Jesus died, like that's when it would be a time to fast or whatever. Like, are you saying he's actually saying that? Or he's just using that as an example to say, you know, right now it's happening. If something bad happened, then... I think that's the implication of this. <laughs> but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So does that mean like when he died and they were upset or when he's taken back to heaven and then he's not on earth anymore? I would take it more as when he died. I mean, there's so many times in the Gospels when Jesus says something to allude to his death. Like, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. I think this is another one of those just very brief allusions. He knows they're going to take the bridegroom away and he knows that's going to be a very upsetting time. That's my take. I don't know. Somebody else see that differently? Because... I guess it's not necessarily his physical presence on earth that was meaningful. Like, it was sad that he, you know, was gone after that, but he's still with us now. So, I guess it makes a little more sense if it was because of his death and they were sad about that. <coughs> yeah, I think, well, you're saying it makes more sense if it's because of his death. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. They're coming. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a nice listen to join us on time. <laughs> on time? Yeah, yeah. On their time. <laughs> <laughs> For me, still time a little bit. You know, it was, it was I'm okay. sure it's not the same time in Burma as it is. <laughs> <laughs> we just forgot to change their clocks. <laughs> he did. His clock is wrong from when he was oh, in California. Yeah, it was just like a mix up. Sure. Yeah, they'll be here at some point. Yeah. Cool. Other thoughts and comments on this through verse 17? Okay, 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I shall get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been put out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And this news went out into all the land. Now, we've been looking at, you know, about three healings and then something about being a disciple. Three more healings, then the call of Matthew and the question for the disciples on fasting. Now we're going to have maybe four more healings here in this section. Um, or four more miracles. So, um... You've got this story, the synagogue official, who wants Jesus to do what? Come and heal his daughter. Yeah. She's died, and she needs to be healed. So Jesus is getting up and going to do this. Now, this is clearly a condensed account. You know, it, it always, you know, makes people think when they read the gospel accounts together. Because <clears throat> the truth is, first, when he first spoke to her, she wasn't dead yet, and then she was. Well, Matthew just kind of puts all that together and gives you the bottom line. That's okay. You know, we'll do that all the time. We, we will summarize what happened. We won't give every step, thankfully. 
Wouldn't you love to hear somebody tell a story that told you every detail? <laughs> Some people you <know>. do. <laughs> <laughs> and don't you love listening to those stories? <laughs> yes. So, uh, but but he's he's going to heal this this daughter. When there's this other woman in the crowd, and she has had a hemorrhage for twelve years, um, and you know probably we're dealing with some sort of female issue with her and you know if that's the case what what did that then make her Unclean. and that meant that you know anybody who touched her or anybody who touched anything she sat on or anything she laid down on became unclean wouldn't that be frustrating you know, she's got a rough thing. And and you don't, you you really want to kind of keep a low profile. You don't want anybody knowing, you know. This is just uncomfortable. Can you imagine her going up and asking for Jesus to heal her? That would be very embarrassing, very uncomfortable. So what does she do instead? She has to sneak up and get healed without anybody knowing. Yeah, if I can just touch his garment. Then I'll be healed. And well, she she actually does that. She touched the fringe of his coat, cloak, and and because she's saying that. But Jesus doesn't let her by with that. Jesus healed her purposely when she touched his clothes. Would you think that anybody who touched Jesus any time was automatically healed? And what about the people who laid hands on him to arrest him? <laughs> you know, that'd be cool. Anybody who touches him immediately healed. No, it is not magic. This is not some sort of uh, aura around him that if you get close enough, it zaps your body or something like that. Jesus purposely healed her, but she didn't necessarily know that. Jesus wanted to talk to her and let her know that things were okay. Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And so she's made well. Um, so, so Jesus comforts her that she's not stolen anything and everything's okay. Thoughts on that? When it says that she touched the fringe of his cloak, I always imagine that being at the bottom. Yeah. And that just doesn't make sense because she's like that, she was crawling up to him. Yeah. She's not going to come up behind and touch the bottom of his cloak, right? Because that's what I always imagined. It doesn't make any sense. I never imagined that, but I don't know where the fringe was. Mine says castle. Okay, so just probably just like part of. I'm assuming. Mine says castle fringe with a blue cloak. So it would be. Oh! What kind of translation do you have? Oh, okay. Um. Wow. <laughs> okay. Would they have had those on the arm openings, I wonder? I don't know. But did they drag back? Okay. So she didn't touch it. Well, she just, okay. So she Maybe. just touched part of it. Maybe she touched it with her foot. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm. I have so. never considered these questions, so <laughs> I'm... Well, I just wanted to picture it better. I'm unprepared for this discussion. Um, I pictured her crawling. So it says in Mark or something that Jesus says, who touched me? Yes. Why did he say that? Like he knew. I forgot. Like obviously it's not in here, but. Somebody came in and went out. Uh, what would have made a private event public that way? Somebody's here. Uh, yes. I mean, Jesus yeah. wanted her to uh, own up to what she'd done. So it was just part of acknowledging her. Did taxi bring you or what? Yep, my taxi. It, uh, shot across, just left with my car. <laughs> well, that's not a very good deal. Then yep. Nope. Right. <laughs> well, so I'm going gonna, gonna to need somebody to drop me off back. <laughs> no problem, we can do All that. Okay. And I have a, a wrong version of Bible, and this is Maurice, and you probably guys want to understand that. <laughs> well, you, but you, you can look at it if that's helpful to you, or we'll get you an English one, with whichever. Okay. Yes, in case Just don't read. In fact, uh, after, afterwards, I want to see what Burmese looks like. Is it yeah. Burmese or Chin? 
Burmese. Okay. So it's all circles? Yep. Cycle circles right here. I was showing Dad my Burmese. Every letter is circle. Really? Some sort of a curve. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is all being recorded, you know. Is, is that only the New Testament? It, no, it's uh, the Old Testament and both. Wow. It all fits in there? And you yeah. can actually understand this. <laughs> That's amazing. That's cool. Yep, thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. So where are we at? So we are in Matthew nine. We're looking at a story from eighteen to twenty-six. We're really about verse twenty-two. So I think I think Jesus was just trying to get her to admit what she'd done. Again, Matthew condenses this. Mark probably condensed it too, if we really knew all the details of the story. And it it almost confuses us because we know the stories in various accounts, and so. We're kind of like, why did he say that? Why didn't he say this? But this just summarizes. Typically, when Matthew and Mark relate the same event, Mark gives more details than Matthew. That would be a typical pattern. Well, would, sorry. Yes. Wouldn't have been much of a teaching thing if he hadn't made it known. If she was the only one that knew it, no one else would have profited from his miracle and, and what that was for. And she could have felt like she robbed it and have a conscience problem later. I mean, he's encouraging or even, her. Or even felt like she did it on her own. Didn't really need Jesus. He doesn't need to know. I or that was the one magic. That, exactly. Yeah, that touched, touched him. Yeah. You can see a lot of good reasons why he did this. So then he gets to the uh, girl's house and uh, what's going on there in verse 23? process. Yes, they're in a high funeral here. You know, they've got the uh, flute players and they've got the crowd, which probably consisted of professional mourners. They would hire people to mourn, which sounds really funny to us, but it didn't sound funny to them. And uh, so Jesus says, ah, leave, for the girl's not died, but is asleep. Now, what does Jesus mean? She's trying to get up again. Yes. He wasn't denying her death. This is not the story of how Jesus woke a girl from her daytime nap. You know, this is, but, but it's like a sleep because he's going to raise her up. But they laugh at him. You wouldn't expect the grieving family to laugh even at that. Professional mourners would be more likely to. But they laugh at him because this is absurd. She's clearly dead. But when Jesus goes in, he takes her by the hand and she gets up. You know, what an amazing thing. You know, Jesus does so many incredible things. By the way, uh, there's, there's a couple of things that are interesting here. This is the synagogue official's daughter. In verse 22, Jesus calls the woman daughter. And you don't learn this in Matthew, but I'll add this. Do you know how old that girl was? Old that was brought back? Yes, that was raised. Twelve. Twelve. How long had the woman had the bleeding? Twelve years. Yeah, several connections between these. It's kind of interesting to think about. She'd had the female disorder the whole time that girl had been alive. So that's, that puts it in perspective. Caleb, what are you saying? All right, comments or questions through verse 26. So in 22, when he says, Take courage, your faith has made you well. What aspect of her faith was, was being evidenced here? I think the fact that she came to him and touched him. I mean, that's, that's how it's, you can see that she had that faith. You wouldn't have come up and just touched any Tom, Dick, or Harry, you know. So, those without faith didn't come to Jesus. They didn't seek the healing, and and Jesus never gave it. I mean, Jesus wouldn't go into a city and just say, "May the Lord heal everybody in this city." He healed the people who came, just like the synagogue official. Absolutely. I think I, I think I may have mentioned this last time. Though. It wasn't necessarily a 
faith that Jesus was the Son of God and was the Messiah. It was a faith and a belief that he could heal. Yes. Which is what they believed in at this time. Now a lot that was the purpose of that was to lead to the belief that he was the Messiah. But many, obviously we see, believed he could heal, so they came and then later <laughs> left him or you know, it appears. Well and, and you see throughout the gospels that faith is not just one thing. You know, the disciples' faith kept growing. You know, they could have little faith, they could have more faith. You know, we don't, faith is not just you have it or you don't. And so there's different levels. I mean, to believe that Jesus could heal her is one thing. To have a mature conviction about who Jesus was would be a much higher level. And the fact that her faith made her well does not in any way mean that that is the only way that people could be healed. Would you agree? Like the daughter who is dead. Yeah. Yes. There and were people. The soldier that has ear cut off. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about that one. You know? Yes. Well, your faith has healed your. No. While typically Jesus didn't heal without someone seeking it, there were occasions like Malchus where he did. Uh, demon-possessed people. He cast out the demons and they certainly weren't seeking that. You know, so, yeah, it, it, typically he would heal the people who had enough faith to at least come and ask. I mean, but that, not, that's not obviously always. a sticky point today when people try to heal. Well, you don't have enough faith. Right. Well, that was never required for Jesus to be able to heal someone. That, that's right. In John 5, Jesus healed a man who had no idea who he was. <laughs> that paralyzed guy there by the pool. You know, <laughs> later he finds out, but he's he didn't know. Yes. <laughs> you know, so he didn't have any faith. But just in this case, her faith made her well because yeah. she wouldn't have come if she hadn't yes. believed. Exactly. Okay. Good question. I mean, uh, it just it yeah. just points out different ways that he does that. You know, you showed faith, and and it caused you to come and be healed, and others. He did the miracles for other reasons and, and I agree. to show others to help their faith or whatever the, the case may have been. So. Mm -hmm. Good point. Other thoughts? Okay, 27 to 31. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him shouting, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, they answered him. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. Okay. Two blind men saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And it looked like that was something they kept saying. How did they know Jesus was the son of David? heard it somewhere. Absolutely. They had heard the evidence that showed he was the Messiah. Very much like us. Had they ever seen a miracle? No. <laughs> <laughs> they had not. That's a trick question. It is. <laughs> but it, just like us, they believed the reports. So in a sense, they're, they're in a similar position to us. And uh, but, but they've heard and they, they do believe he's the son of David and they believe he can do this and so he touched their eyes and they are healed according to their faith. Again, it was them crying out and seeking Jesus that led to that. Jesus didn't normally just as he went along the road say, you're blind, I'll heal you. It's normally by seeking. But Jesus then gave them orders to do what? opened their eyes and told them to close their mouths. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I thought about it that way, but yes. And what do they do? They told people anyway. So they disobeyed Jesus' orders. It's interesting that you can have a miracle performed on you and that still doesn't guarantee you're going to be an obedient disciple. Why would Jesus have told them not to tell? Somebody could say it was reverse psychology. 
Yes, I but I think that. I don't believe Jesus used reverse psychology. It's too much <laughs> like lying. <laughs> but yes, some people that's that's the explanation a lot of people give. What's the better explanation for why Jesus told him not to tell? Was it time? Yeah, that's part of it. He's on a mission. Yes. He wanted to be able to continue to do what he was doing to get more people to see these things without being mobbed by those that have seen these things. Yeah. I mean, there is danger uh, of there being too much of an atmosphere of excitement and just uh, almost a sensationalist kind of a thing. You let all these reports be trumpeted and people are just going to come to watch the show. That's counterproductive to Jesus' work. And uh, so it would have been better if these two blind men had listened to Jesus and done what he said. Now it's interesting though they are told not to tell, and they do. We're told to tell, and a lot of times we don't. Isn't that amazing? Comments and thoughts? So, so they were supposed to go back home? <laughs> <laughs> they could show, not tell. Walk into the house and bump into things. Act like they're blind. <laughs> No, no. Oh, okay. Well, they recognized that something really great had just happened to them. And when we don't tell, I think part of that's because we don't appreciate the greatness of what has happened to us. Yeah. We haven't sensed the amazing nature of having been blind, and now we see. You know, we need to reflect more on what the Lord has done for us. It would be much more, much more natural to tell if we were really thinking about that. I really appreciate that, that you you related uh, you kind of, you try to relate it as us with the uh, with the blind uh, the blind guys in the Bible. Because sometimes I feel like you know if I can oh if I can see this you know if I was in the Israeli who saw the the water raised out of, right next to them. At one thousand feet or whatever that yeah. water was, if I could see that, I'll be. I'm. I'm pretty sure I'll be a believer. That I will. I, I will right away teaching people. You know, this is it. This is the Lord. But I'm thinking, you know, some some of the guys didn't even have to see the miracle. They believe. They believe in that Jesus was Messiah for just by you know hearing the, the, the news from other people, and yet we got millions of Israelis see the miracle. And then, you know, they ate the food from heaven and yet, they, you know, betrayed God. So, I don't think that have anything to do with, you know, with, with our eyes. Our sight have mean nothing when it comes down to faith. You know, that's exactly right. The Lord has given us enough evidence. It comes down to a test of our heart. The evidence is there. It's not visual evidence for us. It's eyewitness <laughs> testimony. You know, we believe all kinds of things we can't see. Electricity. Yeah. <laughs> or like, we believe, I don't know what you know about U.S. history, and I know nothing about Burmese history, <laughs> but uh, we believe that George Washington was the first president. I never saw George Washington, despite my advancing years. <laughs> and, uh, but I believe that he was the first president. Why? Because there's all <coughs> kinds of evidence for that. We have excellent evidence for Jesus, but we've never seen him. I don't think it would make any difference because those who did see Jesus were divided just like we are. It comes down to a test of our heart and our willingness to believe. Other thoughts? And like you said, it's based on evidence, like you just don't go believing whatever somebody tells you because they told it to you, or else we have to believe all the religions. <laughs> and that wouldn't work, but there, you have to see which one has the most evidence. Yes, you look for truth. You seek to find out and verify what God has really said. Yeah, absolutely. So you were just never in the same city with George Washington? Yeah, yeah, we missed each other a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, uh, verse 32 to 34. 
they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed <coughs> man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. So here Jesus heals a demon-possessed man <coughs> who, who can't speak. And when he cast the demons out, the demon out, he spoke. And what do the crowds say? Declare he's Satan. Say it again. Satan. Oh, that's what the, the enemy said. What did the crowds say in verse 33? Oh, they never seen anything like this before. Wow, this is amazing. We've never seen anything like this. The enemy said, he's just doing it by the power of Satan. <laughs> it didn't matter that they saw it. They still didn't believe. They said, oh, it's just Satan doing it. You know, that's kind of a desperate, uh, you know, attempt on their part. They really can't deny that Jesus had the power, but they deny that it, the source of the power is from God. Jesus does the same thing for us. He gives us the ability and opportunity to speak for him. You know, Jesus heals our blindness spiritually. He gives us spiritual ability to speak. You know, a lot of the things Jesus did in a physical way show his ability spiritually with us. Comments and thoughts on that story? I think we come to a new segment starting in verse 35 or 36. I'm not sure whether you want to put 35 maybe in this uh, segment or not. But but we, we're really, we, we've been looking at examples of Jesus teaching, 5 to 7, and his healing in chapters 8 and 9. Now we see a lot more in these next couple of chapters about Jesus' mission, you know, his work, what he's here for, and therefore what the disciples' mission is too. So chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Well, in 35, it's the same thing as he'd said in 423, kind of wrapping up that section and summarizing. Jesus going from city to city, teaching, proclaiming, healing. And then in 36, he looks at the people and what does he see? He feels bad for them. Why? Because there are too many of them and there's not... There was not enough, you know. Of him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have any guidance. They don't know where they're going. Jesus sees their terrible spiritual need. And he cares about that. What do we do when we see a crowd? Man, how am I going to get through this crowd to get this or that? You know, man, I don't like people. You know, or whatever. Jesus sees a crowd and he immediately sees them in terms of their spiritual need and he feels compassion for them. He's teaching and training his disciples to open their eyes to where people are at and what they need. That whole concept of looking at people and seeing their, their, their true life, seeing their soul, we look at people and we say, you look really white, are you sick? You know, we look at somebody and we say, your eyes look bad, you're tired, you know, or whatever. We look and we see their physical condition and we care. You know, somebody's going like this, like, you need to go to bed, I can see you're sleepy. But when do we ever see people and we start thinking, you know, 
you need help. You need guidance. You need the Lord. That's what Jesus saw. And he cared about them. And so he's telling the disciples to see this need too. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so what does he tell them they need to do? Pray. Pray. With every time we see a need, every time we see a problem, the first thing we ought to do is turn to God. You know, that ought to be our first impulse. To, to, to ask God and, 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 and then the next thing Jesus does in the next section is he trains the disciples to go out and teach and he sends them out so that more, more people can be taught. We need to pray and then we need to be training and going out. You know, Jesus saw there was a, a shortage of gospel teachers and he trained the 12 and sent them out to help respond to that need. I think it's just really helpful to just see Jesus' sense of mission, his sense of urgency, his sense of what really mattered. You know, you might take people who are in the hospital in the cancer ward and you might see a bunch of people who are dying with cancer or you might see a bunch of lost people who don't have long to turn to the Lord you know you might go to some you know very poor country and you might either see a bunch of poor starving people and you just you can't stand it and you start begging people for money to send to give them food or you might see people, first of all, who need the Lord, and then they need food. You know, so often, we are really keen on seeing the physical need, and we're moved by that. If you saw a bunch of starving people, would you not help them if you could? You know, wouldn't you share your meal with them, or give up your meal to them, or, or fork over some money if it would help them, if there was food available to buy, or whatever? But we see people who are starving, for spiritual food and we don't sense that same sense of urgency and mission. So I think it's real, this is a helpful introduction to what's going to happen in the next chapter or two as Jesus is sending the twelve out as he's trying to get the gospel spread more. Comments and questions? I think that really makes sense to have like Jesus seeing the spiritual need first. I think that I can apply it, I can relate to you in real life, in my own life, that it doesn't matter how much money you, uh, you, you make or it doesn't matter how much money you, you, you know, how many things you have. The thing is, if you don't have the, the, the God, then you still have anxiety, you still have a lot of, the, you know, worry and all these things. So all the thing and all, all, everything that you, you, you've been acquiring for, these don't, don't give you protection or peace or happiness. But if you do have the, the, the Lord, then and it also is that Jesus is not about, he's not about um, taking some, it, he don't teach from getting getting from someone. It's, it's about to, to live for others, to be a servant to others. So in a way is that in order to be, in order to be you know, a servant to other people, you have to be useful first. You have to be, you have to be productive first in order to be, you know, to be, to be useful to others. So is that my, uh, just, um, my understanding becoming as a new Christian is that, you know, it, not only that he gave me, a, you know, the he gave me um, content when when I don't have anything. <laughs> Not only that he gave me happiness or hope for you know for, for either materially or whatever that, that the need is. Every need is fulfilling because I have God, and I, and also that I can be. I want to be productive. I want to be uh, more useful. I want to be you know. I want to manage my, my life so that I can be useful to others. Useful. That that also is that I is a it changes totally direction of a point of life too. So I think that in in well, whatever Burma or whatever that you know the third world country, whatever you you, you want to name it, if they don't have Jesus, if they don't have the, the God, then it doesn't matter how much money they make, or it doesn't matter what kind of the policy change. It might change to you know from dictatorship to to democracy or democracy to whatever they <laughs> want to call it. 
if there was not God in there, then the nation always going to be in, in need, in, in anxiety attack, and in all kind of stuff. What the only peace that could ever claim and, and that I think is possible is by Jesus. That's the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's exactly right. And the only worthwhile thing to do with our lives is to use it to glorify God and to serve others. To have the same mission that Jesus had. We need to come to have the same heart he had, the same will he had, the same purpose that he had. So Jesus came to glorify and serve his Father and to serve others and die for them. So that ought to be our purpose too. It helps us when we can see what Jesus, you know, real passion was. <coughs> and then we seek to have that same passion. Other thoughts? Even even the, the multitudes at this time, you know, it, maybe it's a little telling about their spiritual leadership. You know, why were they lost? They had what they needed up to Jesus. Now they would have been looking for him, or should have been. But the spiritual leadership, I think that's almost a you know an indication or a commentary on the Pharisees and the spiritual leadership that they had. They were completely lost because. They couldn't follow what they had. It wasn't any good. Absolutely. And the Old Testament often uses the shepherd metaphor to talk about the priests, the prophets, <coughs> the other <coughs> leaders that were supposed to be guiding them toward God and usually were at best negligent or at sometimes even uh, exploited the, the sheep for yeah. their own counter, desires. Totally counter. <laughs> yeah. The anti-shepherd. Yeah. yeah. So you're exactly right. And it's the same thing we see today. I mean, how many bad shepherds do we see that are leaving the sheep unattended and unprovided for, or even feeding them things that are poisonous and that are killing them? So we've got the same, we ought to have the same feeling Jesus did, same urgency. Other thoughts? All right, uh, one to four in chapter 10.